Today I'm joined by um, a, an Australian correspondent. Um, for, it is Amy Therese from the What's Left podcast. I first um, heard of Amy and her work as uh, I saw her being frantically denounced online by a group of uh, Maoists who were uh, pro-Elizabeth Warren Maoists, which was possibly the strangest combination I could think of. But then upon further research and listening to Amy's podcast, but perhaps it isn't a strange combination. So I'm delighted to welcome on today um, Amy from the What's Left podcast. Hello, Amy. G'day, mate. <laughs> How you doing? It's, uh, uh, yes. Um, should we get all, all the Aussie cliches out of the way early uh, and the English cliches as well? Um, it's so funny. Like, I, I actually find myself like... Um, having a greater degree of sympathy or like um affinity with poms like when i <laughs> talk to people in the states because like mm. i find myself inadvertently like dropping bits of like cockney rhyming slang and shit like that and they'll just be like what is that what and i'm like yeah oh. the, 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 right. our yankee Philistines. friends our yankee <laughs> friends can't understand an english guy who doesn't sound like hugh grant you know oh god yeah um, <laughs> Piers, what's his face? Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan. Piers Moron, as he's uh, more appropriately known. Um, <laughs> a, a, a human slug in a suit, basically. Um, <laughs> so um, I wanted to have um, Amy on the show today because um, in the podcast which um, she co-presents, um, the, she covers a lot of uh, the, uh, some uh, similar ground to what I've been discussing on this channel, uh, mainly the collapse of uh, the uh, so-called revival of social democracy in the form of Jeremy Corbyn in Britain and Bernie Sanders in the United States, and what that means for the wider state of working actual working class politics, and what's where do we, well, not only where do we go from here, but why are we in the situation that we're in now when we've gone from people telling us that this was the great revival just uh, eight months ago to, oh, my God, it's all gone uh, today. Uh, so how do we get into this moment? But let's start off with, Amy, your podcast is uh, called What's Left? What's Left? Uh, what, do you want to talk just a little bit about why you started that and what, what, are you, what aims, if any, do you have in terms of like you, the the project that involved that involves that? What do you want to get out of uh, putting out putting the podcast out there? Okay, um, multitude of factors really. So initially last year, um, very beginning of last year, I'd previously been for about a year on um, a totally different podcast co-hosting. Um, and then it sort of became apparent that my former co-host wanted to sort of. I guess, like, lean in some directions that um, that perhaps, like, I was going to be a liability to. I don't mm -hmm. think I quite um, – he certainly didn't have the chops to acknowledge as much, but it became increasingly <laughs> clear throughout the primary that, like, oh. something that I think is actually far more cyclical and, like, impersonal – which is where sort of between different cycles you get a lot of this sort of like radical affect um, immediately after a loss. Yeah. Um, and the implication that like this is going to be all new, better, improved, like we're going to rectify, you know, all the mistakes that we don't admit to making um, yeah. so that this time we'll all be 
you know, the true authentic thing. Um, but then I think gradually, gradually, as like the sort of discipline of party politics um, increases as as elections get closer, um, the bombast and the bravado <laughs> goes away and it sort of retreats back into a far more like um, acceptable form of liberalism, basically. Yeah. And, like, I sort of, I think it took a bit of retrospective wisdom to see explicitly that that's what it was. That was my suspicion at the time, but, you know, you never know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty clear that that's what that was. So um, in that moment, I was pretty keen on just doing, like, um, continued, like, observation and commentary in relation to Sanders. Yeah. I was never under any, like, major illusions about Sanders being able to necessarily implement most of the things that he thought were like admirable and that he was committed to simply yeah. because like even when my so even when I was a little I, I think definitely like my politics have sharpened like my analysis is very much sharpened over the last year and a half but I think even from the jump, I wasn't, like, delusional enough to think that Saunders was just going to, like, magically implement Medicare for all or, like, mm. suddenly somehow do this, like, vanguard top-down strategy that was going to, you know, fundamentally change the the relations of power within the United States. Like, you mean you, you weren't up, all in you know? for him creating the Vermont Soviet? Yeah, I mean, just that's just not how any of this works, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> I did think that if nothing else... Um, having, and again, like the, the Sanders that had been consistent for 40 odd years was if nothing else, someone committed to, um, bombastically advocating for, for working class power and putting like it, class politics back on, if nothing else, on the discursive arena, you know, yeah. in a way that 40 years of neoliberalism had made basically like a, a non non-starter in mm. federal politics so so i thought that was worth pursuing um but increasingly like it became so clear that all these what seemed like extremely like obvious fucking traps being laid for him by one elizabeth warren um <laughs> everyone was just falling into them like mm. fucking leading into them and i'm just like oh wow okay this was this was, this isn't, ah, you know? Because <laughs> um, I guess, like, what had happened prior to that was in, like, 2017, 2018, there'd been, like, sort of, I guess you look back now and there are sort of, like, particular peaks that sort of puncture what, like, they puncture the narrative in terms of what people think is happening. Yeah. So this idea of, like, resurgent socialism or whatever, like, there were pretty obvious things playing out that, like, you know, in 2017 when someone like Danny Fatonte is, like, kicked out of the DSA and, like, just all this, like, really obvious shit that became increasingly clear that this was, like, a liberal lobby group. You sort yeah. of look back and you're like, oh, God, it was so obvious the whole time, Amy. Like, you idiot. But <laughs> at the same time, like, I still thought there was enough of a core of, like, people who were fundamentally committed to Sanders, but also had like a, I was, I guess, naive enough to think that they actually had a more substantive set of like, I guess, 
critical tools or like that the, their analysis was just so much better and more substantive than it was. Like I always thought that half the people on his team were just like moralizing left libs, but whatever, yeah. what can you do? But I at yeah. least thought that like maybe people like Bashkar and shit, I thought that they were like just not idiots, not complete clowns and transactional clowns and yeah, it that, turns out I was uh, mistaken you know? Chara, the uh, the editor of Jacobin isn't it yeah yeah and it I mean it's one thing to be like a dummy with your political analysis and it's yeah. another to just be like a fucking hack and I didn't <laughs> realize that he was a fucking hack and also like a dummy with his analysis and so were like three quarters of the people on the board of Jacobin and yeah. so I was just like, oh, Amy, you dumbass. Like, this was never what you thought it was, really, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it was um, some similar experiences that um, uh, many of us had here with the Corbyn movement, or so-called movement, anyway. Um, so, I mean, my next question was going to be, uh, um, you know, your interest in the Sanders campaign. But I think that, that actually takes us nicely into uh, a first our first comparison between Sanders and Corbyn, which is that, I mean, the reason I got interested in Corbyn was because not I mean he was always his career history as a politician was he was more to the left in terms of social democratic politics than Bernie Sanders was and he was more historically uh, on the side of like anti-war sometimes anti-imperialist um, so, um, radical reformist left in British politics terms um, but the thing that I thought overall that he could potentially do was to actually bring back some very basic working class demands into the yes. main the so-called mainstream again Big so time. like yeah. just um even just something like because my my background um when corbyn broke through was i was working um i was i was a trade unionist in the civil in the british civil service which is an unrewarding experience at the best of times um <laughs> but um the um what I thought was, okay, well, at the very least, he could restore, like, some of the national collective bargaining rights of the unions uh, right. and stop, exactly, like, the, yeah. the fragmentation, the endless fragmentation of the union negotiation structures, which means you can't legally organise, like, a national strike anymore uh, in many yes, different um, totally. different areas. Uh, so I thought, yeah. okay, well, maybe he can do that. Maybe he can do a le small elements of nationalisation, like uh, the the, uh, the railways, for instance, which in Britain are just a complete fucking disaster. Um, maybe he can do some nationalisation there. Maybe uh, um, he can get rid of some of the most uh, egregious examples of like anti-trade union legislation uh, that had been built up by 40 years of... Um, 40 years of unrestrained British capitalism getting everything it wanted out of uh, the government in terms of anti-union legislation. Um, so I was thinking, OK, he's not, you know, going to de immediately declare, um, you know, year zero or something. Um, but maybe this can be a, a start of a revival, even if he never actually gets into power. At least we can start building on it. Um, well, right. Exactly. Yeah, that, I totally concur. That's where I was at. Like, even if you can just like um create a little bit of space from which people can like people are so fucking alienated right now yeah. you know yeah. that even the ability to conceive of and enact like certain things is just not there like people are, like in, in this state of like pretty hardcore deprivation desperation and like 
40 years worth of neoliberal rhetoric that just like mm. relentlessly tells you that the guy next door is your competition. Yeah. Just like yeah. I, I thought there was potentially some value there. And, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, only for us both to be proved wrong in many ways. Um, but the, I mean, there was, there was an initial flurry of um, hope, hope and expectation in terms of uh, they both, Corbyn and Sanders both broke through around about the same time in sort of late 2015. And yeah, I think that's a lot right. of people yeah. got very excited about that. And you, you know what, right, rightly so, because it was something out of, out of, out of left field. But what, um, the reason why I think it's, the thing is our approach to both of these characters had in common is that um, I didn't realise until I'd been in the workplace for several years, actually dealing with um, union issues and just even just the basic stuff of like dealing with workplace interactions, just how deep, um, what a, for want of a better term, I'm going to call this sort of the neoliberal value set had sunk into the, the working class population uh, into the point where, Things that were unthinkable or things that used to, or, or on the other, the flip side, things that used to be common practice, like just the basic elements of working class solidarity had been stamped out so hard that it actually took a bit of work just to even get back near them again. Um, does that oh, make absolutely, sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like when, when you've had so long of being fundamentally precarious and where like, the material like okay so i think with neoliberalism 1.0 like what it did was a whole bunch of the, like industrial reforms and like it materially um atomized people like mm. in terms of breaking up unions um sort of telling everyone that they're a piece of fucking human capital that like yeah. It needs to be like it, you know, the responsibilization of the subject, you know, that like it's on you and all that bullshit. Yeah. And like the physicality of like, yeah, smashing unions, like pulling people apart in every which way at every opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I think like in this sort of like newer era, like what you ultimately have is not just people who've been atomized and alienated, like in terms of like industrial relations or whatever. But fundamentally, like, they're neoliberal subjects. Like, yeah. ideologically, they've come of age in an era where, like, there is no ideology, where politics is, like, technocratic and where, like, individuals mm. need to work really hard. Um, and the sort of, like, tacit assumption is that if you're not, it's on you, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. the whole there is no such thing as society that wasn't just like a refrain that was something that was oh, like a cultural policy. change that was instituted through like measures to make that kind of the default setting for people do you know what i mean like it yes, wasn't just yes. like oh this is a belief you must adopt it's like if we institute a whole bunch of measures to make this the default and then you sort of have a bunch of people who've come up in an era where that actually was the default yeah you you can't just like tell them a bunch of like hippy dippy sh utopian shit that sounds pleasant and think that that's gonna like um override the fact that they're fucking working gig work on an app and like can barely feed their family and have been subject to like you know 20 25 years worth of like ruthless pr 
predatory fucking capitalism and expect that like selling them this hippie dippy shit and they're gonna be like oh yeah that sounds great i definitely believe you uh-huh i'm on board <laughs> yeah <laughs> considering considering many of the most successful capitalists of the modern era have been um have started off their careers as hippies as well uh, it's no wonder that the working class doesn't everybody hates hippies you know everybody should hate hippies um yeah. every and you know famously richard branson started off his career as a um as a hippie in the squatters movement in london of course he fucking did I yeah hate him so he's much. such an asshole so i mean yeah. what a fucking anarchist oh yeah completely he's he's a, he's a still um a sort of an, an anarchic figure um the Ooh. rebel billionaire you know he actually had a taxation is theft hey look don't tread on <laughs> don't me don't tread on me exactly <laughs> yeah um so when i um looking at the the sanders and corbyn phenomenons if you want to call it that um and looking at this the the fact that neoliberalism um has so thoroughly permeated into our uh individual and collective characters almost because Anybody who's been born since really the early 70s has grown up in a world where they probably have very little memory of the kind of very different um, culture that came before in terms of working class culture. So things that used to be in the generation before um, before the, the, um, the millennials, uh, things that used to be taken as red, like, um, you know, in Britain, it used to be that the, the, war, the, the workers just raising their hands and, and saying yes we're walking out was literally part of the culture of, of so many workplaces and was so recognized and ingrained in, a, in well okay if the if everyone votes to come out we all come out and we all tell the scabbies an asshole and um the specific plan of the um the thatcher and major governments was not just to defeat the union but to make that kind of instinctive solidarity completely alien to stamp it out in a way in which they could they were trying to make sure it could never ever come back to even just re, uh, to even remove the working class's knowledge of itself as a class does that absolutely. make sense yeah 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 absolutely like i think it's really easy to um sort of buy the libtard frame that like class is like you know an economic position it's like you know the amount that's in your bank account no class is a social relation and if you yeah. fundamentally if a bunch of people are um, buying into the sort of like neoliberal project as a direct result of the decimating of collectivity which is ultimately what neoliberalism is all about like if that's successful then then whilst that those those subjects exist with a certain set of relations if then fundamentally not aware of them and that if their affinity is with the reigning ideology mm. in ways that they're not cognizant of yeah um, like I, I mean i don't mean to be a condescending kind of, my my implication is never that like you know, I, I, I'm apprehensive about using false consciousness and all that shit. But I mean, quite simply, like, it's very, very natural to understand the world around you in the ways that you are taught to and, like, the ways that it's materially reinforced to you all day, every day. Like, yeah, if, if the way that you go along, to, like, if the way that you survive is by complying with the system in which you exist... 
yeah, then that's what you're you going to know. do. Yeah, you know, you like know because you, you need to fucking survive. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just um, it, you know, it, I think Zizek referred to it in one of his books as you know, ideology at its purest is the uns- it's the unspoken assumption. It's the thing. Yes, that you absolutely. Don't, it, it's what you don't need to think about. You just do. Yes, absolutely. It's like that idea. Like he says, like people always quote the bit about like uh, eating from the the um, garbage can all the time, and the name of this garbage can is ideology but Mm. like the next line after that is that the material force of the ideology means i don't even know what i'm eating yeah which i think it's like the material force of it that is that is doing the thing rather than it's not just like some fucking imagination or a set of like ideas that you consciously adopt because you have like moral or like uh, emotional affinity with them you know what i mean yeah, that's why um, um, idealism is such crap because um, it, it's the material for the material forces shape the the ideological underpinning. And yes, people... and so much of this like newest resurgence is like some kind of fucking Gramsci an attempt to like change hegemony like oh, overtly. God, yeah. Yeah, they, you know well, what I mean. Like so much of it was like, oh, if I say, if I hear one more person quote that fucking Fisher quoting um, uh, Frederick, what's his face? Jameson. Um, Frederick Jameson with the bit about the fucking imagine the end of the world before you can imagine the end of capitalism. All that yeah. crap. Like, I'm sorry, you middle class brats, but like the problem that working class people have has never been a lack of imagination. Here's no, how I can demonstrate that to you. My fucking bogan gran buys herself a lottery ticket every week. She has no problems imagining being rich. That's why no. she buys that stupid lottery ticket. Mm. Her problem was never, like, in her imagination. It's not like, oh, it, you know, oh, her imagination is what's dried up and that's why, you know, she keeps being brutally exploited and has to work through retirement. All we need is to give her some nicer, pretty ideas. Fuck off. It's not a lack of imagination that's the problem here. No, you know? it's, it's the it's material want and the the lack of and people can't imagine anything better because well essentially they they're too busy getting by. You know. But so what the if they world. can imagine something better? Then what? Yeah. Well, they don't. They don't have the capacity, the autonomy within this particular context. For imagining things better to mean anything. Well, that's why it's. A it's only place. middle class people yeah. who, like, I, I honestly, I'm now at the point where I think that actually, what this whole like phase was, was that the ruling class had run out of like had literally run out of like a legitimating ideology post financial crash. Mm. And so what happened is all these like fucking bureaucrats and humanity scholars who are normally the ones like furnishing and propagating the reigning legitimation stories of the state because they were because the state had rammed up against a wall and was in the toilet for a few years and like the pre-existing ideology no longer had any fucking like Like, all the legitimation stories had broken down with the crash, right? Like, all that shit from the 90s, neoliberalism 1.0, like, the up, up, and away, all that crap. It's just like, no, this is a farce. It's not working. We can see that it's not working materially. So, you clowns had better get your shit straight. And I think that this last 10 years, basically, 
Pespian a 10-year period in which they needed to start writing a whole bunch of legitimation stories to the state. And that's what all this fucking we need more imagination bullshit was. That's yeah. how you get all these, like, clowns coming up with all these, like, new policy documents and these big fucking sounding, like, expansive utopianism. It's because <laughs> the old stories weren't working anymore. Yeah, yeah. So they had well, to come up with a bunch of new pretexts. Like, and then you see all these little offshoot fucking grift farms coming off of both Sanders and Corbyn, yeah. where, like, they're pretending to do, like, working-class politics. Like, I forgot their name of it, but there's one of them in the UK that is all about, allegedly, the um, the um, nationalisation or, like, localization of utilities and stuff. But yeah. it's basically just a make-work farm that just farms out, like, these dumbass policies that they're just being greenwashed a little bit and they'll be like... Well, yeah, it's like localism, and you can, and it's like, you know, um, municipality owned oh, and shit. Yeah. I'm just like, this I, is this just reeks. Like, well, how are people buying this shit? Yeah, that was, that was like the Green Party. The Green Party, who are in England, I think everywhere actually, are the most disgusting bunch of uh, sort of ultra liberal, uh, yeah, uh, climate yeah. capitalists you could possibly find. Um, and they come up with they come up with this the uh, the various different uh, sort of dressed up um, petty bourgeois um, reformist policies like oh well everybody can operate their own power plant <laughs> or um, yeah yeah or um, what was Caroline Lucas who's the Green Party leader here wrote this absolutely ludicrous book called We Need a Zero Growth Economy <laughs> which is every bit as contradictory and ludicrous as it sounds but. All of that crap that you've just described. Anyone saying that stuff, I'm like, what do you do? Uh, are we going to do jush? Are we doing like Taliban year zero shit? Because otherwise, shut the fuck up. What are you talking about? No, I think that's, in fairness to Kim Il Sung, they did manage they did manage economic growth. You know, that's it's fair. Like yeah. The um, that these guys couldn't even manage that. Um, and it it it's so obviously just a completely um bourgeois framework. But um, the problem was that a lot of this got poured into certainly the Corbyn campaign here. Um, it gave and gave life to what I'm going to call the sort of the uh, union bureaucracy think tank industrial complex, because um, in Britain, the relationship between the unions and the Labour Party is very different to that between uh, what's left of the unions in the United States and the Democratic Party. Again, Can you say that, that again? Um, I was gonna. I was just saying the, left? <laughs> um, the w what's left of the unions. Um, yeah. the, like, you could do a whole episode on that. Um, no, but it was the, a deliberately ambiguous title, by the way. I didn't really explain that before. I wanted it to be. A, it's a little bit apocalyptic, but then also just like the idea that they, like, there's a lot of fucking wreckage as well. <laughs> so that's what I was sort of like. Yeah, anyway, sorry. You invite the audience <laughs> to join you as you pick through the wreckage. Um, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the... The the thing about the, the the British trade unions is that they, whilst they've been diminished, they still have a big, relatively big membership and six million members. They've got that brings with it a lot of financial power over the Labour Party still. Um, so yeah, they I have, read the um the Alex Nunn's the candidate. So I yeah. think that could take a fair bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, because the illusion always was in Britain, and this 
probably applies a little bit in the United States as well. The um, Blair and Blairism was a something that was completely external to um, the Labour Party and trade union movement's history. Um, that mm -hmm. it was an alien force that had invaded and needed to be pushed out. The the reality was that the that Blair was a product of the right wing of the Labour Party, and his power depended upon the traditional basis of the right wing of the Labour Party. So it was um, the sort of uh, charity uh, PMC liberal class, uh, what you commonly refer to in Britain as like Fabians, Fabian society type mm -hmm. people. Um, but the big thing that he rested on was really the power of the more openly right wing elements of the trade union leaders, because mm -hmm. without them, without their money, without their political muscle, Blair would mm -hmm. not have been Labour leader. And he certainly wouldn't have stayed Labour leader for as long as he did. Uh, nor would mm -hmm. Brown, nor would Miliband. So there was this illusion which a lot of the trade union leaders liked to foster that Blairism was some just aberration, that it came from the outside, um, that it wasn't just a logical product of Labour being out of power for uh, 13 years, the industrial and political defeats the working class had suffered, and that consequently the the, the middle, the ultra middle class bit of the Labour Party and its supporters in the trade union leadership were completely untethered then. They hadn't didn't have to make any pretense at giving um, the working class much of anything at all. They could just be completely free to pursue their own vision of politics, which was which sat nicely with a sort of a version of neoliberalism that gave the trade union leaders that threw them a bone in terms of increased public spending. But then on the other side of it, you got basically the privatization and marketization of everything. Uh, that's yeah, I mean, if you can find if you can keep certain things like if you can keep the money flowing while you undermine like the structural capacity of that organization to sort of exist or to support itself, reproduce itself meaningfully in the future, you can yeah. sort of buy yourself time. So you can sort of be yeah. hollowing it from the inside out at the same time as like on the surface, um, it's not broke. Yeah, or that's it's not, the, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. Can, yeah. That's the Blair period in a nutshell, the Blair and Brown period, because they did spend a lot of money on the public yeah. sector. A lot went in, but not only Which did a lot. actually smart policy. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, because it yeah. completely, um, it completely um, um, subordinated um, all your op opposition to, uh, the privatization elements yes. that were creeping I mean, further and further in. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a mystification. Yeah, a really effective one. Yeah. And so you saw that, like, take well, the thing we're seeing now in the, um, the the corona outbreak in Britain is the fact that nobody knows. There's no clear lines of responsibility about uh, logistics and purchasing in the health service, for instance. And then you look at why, and as these circular bureaucracies with diffused responsibilities and we, we, all of which produce endless papers and policies and uh, plans like just like Liz Warren, um, none of which take any responsibility for anything. So there's been about 80 different plans or something for outbreaks in, in Britain and they've all been filed very nicely and they've all got flowcharts on them and because the structure, Blair turned the structure into this sort of amorphous mass dedicated only really to privatization nobody knows what to do anymore and it's perfect yeah. because everybody 
has a claim to um, ownership, nobody has any responsibility. Yeah, it's just this elaborate box passing exercise, ultimately. Yeah. And um, so uh, I went, the reason why I went into that is because the, 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 to understand some of the things that happened with Corbyn, you have to understand the role of the union leaders. And the role of the union absolutely, leaders was, yeah. was absolutely, they, they, had their, they had orchestrated spats with Blair and with Brown. <laughs> so it would be that Blair um, at conference, the Labour conference would have a, a, an orchestrated row with one of the union leaders, the big union leaders that really matter, um, he would call them dinosaurs. They would call him a Tory. There would be a big story in the newspaper. Blair would get to say to his um, to his real base, which was sort of the um, the PMC voters who hate the working class more than anything else. Sorry, oh, look, the P- the PMC isn't real. Sorry, you're mad. Well, it's the let's just say the um, in British terms, it's like the. Um, let's just say London liberals. That probably makes more sense. Um, the um, liberal I base. I believe they're fully automated Bolshevik communists. Uh, well, if you believe the uh, the geniuses, <laughs> the brain geniuses of Navarra Media, then yes. <laughs> um, but Blair got oh, to you say, know oh, such things. <laughs> uh, Blair would get to say, I've had this big fight with the unions. I'm standing up against, um, you know, the spectre of, they always called up the spectre of the 70s because that was when industrial action by the working class got really, really militant and the, the, the upper middle class and the bourgeoisie shit their pants, basically. That's why heads fatcher. Um, and then the union leaders would get to say, look, we called him a Tory. Um, and then they just agree on everything and stitch up the conference anyway. Um, it was all orchestrated. It was all theatre. But the the unions put a lot of money into various different think tanks. The like Unite has a think tank called Class, which is bitterly ironic. <laughs> um, but the, you, you look at the these who these uh, think tanks employ, you start to see there's people in them who have got exactly the same pedigree as the Blairites did 15 years ago, which is that they go from university to a research position to uh, a special advisor position to speaking on the BBC and ITV news about the Labour campaign. 15 years ago, they were doing it for Blair and Brown. Now they're doing it, now they started doing it for Corbyn. Um, No, but but they care really hard. That's true. That's true. Like they really, um, they care really hard, and that just trumps political economy, buddy. Why, why are you so suspicious of them? What are you accusing them of? Why don't um, you believe them? Why are you so negative? Why are you so cynical? <laughs> Cynicism is the number one enemy of the movement. I, so I'm told. I mean, um, that's why I should I should say uh, five hail marys to AOC and uh, grovel for a while. Uh, Literally, it's just such a fucking charlatan. I'm sorry, but like. <laughs> People still like offering to send you fucking steak knives if you call in the next 15 minutes or less blatant about it. <laughs> well, at least you might get the steak knives, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Um, yeah, you, get, you, might, you might get a selfie with AOC, you know? In the old days, yeah, you just. Yeah, the measure of democracy, 60,000 selfies. Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, God, Liz Warren. Um, so the reason why I go into that is because this sort of class of think tank goons. Uh, these are the people who rise to the top with first with Miliband, who was kind of like the prototype um, attempt by the union leaders to sort of navigate back towards some kind of more social democratic <laughs> appearing politics. 
And that was, he's laughable, but um, that's why he ended up in loads of ridiculous situations because he was the trade union leader's candidate, but he was completely unable to deliver anything because he had no social base whatsoever. So when Corbyn comes along, he actually has a mass following, but what gets poured into it is this sort of think tank trade union bureaucracy network um, who didn't really have the agenda of overturning much of the, the, let's just say, the neoliberal period. What they wanted was they felt that Blair had gone too far in pushing them out of the tent. All they wanted really was a seat at the table. Seat at the table, baby. Yeah. They wanted. What could the, be more neoliberal than that? Exactly. Representation they, in the halls of power as they, opposed to actual power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the. They wanted, and some of them were open about this from the beginning, they wanted the appearance of being taken seriously again which again like ties right into what i was saying earlier about like the legitimation stories had broken down yeah yeah right exactly. like so you can't legitimate your role as the like as at the head of a trade union if repeatedly for the last 30 years all like things have just gotten dramatically worse right yeah and um... Now, the when the of course, this is when the money cuts off when Cameron gets in and does austerity. Then, suddenly, all yeah. the glaring contradictions of the privatized public sector uh, or semi privatized public sector become more obvious, and the members start making noise about, Well, why are you giving 11 million quid to the Labour Party if this is what they've done to us? So, then they've got to appear to do something. Um, so that that's like the situation that's the, the background to the Corbyn thing. And one of the things that you and I have been discussing both in this um, discussion so far and, of course, in the in the land of Twitter.com as well, is that... I'm not on Twitter.com. I'm unacquainted uh, with that website. I've been suspended permanently. Yeah. I do hear there's someone, uh, some Casper the Friendly Ghost, um, I, I, bears, yeah. bears my likeness. It's, um, I actually communicate that via a Ouija board. Um, oh, I, nice. Uh, Occasionally, it sends me it sends me back uh, tweets involving um, Liz Warren. Um, the well, I hope they're polite. Uh, cordial, impeccably cordial. Wonderful. Um, um, <laughs> um, so the the thing that does, um, the thing that we've been talking about so far is like how the 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 state institutions and the Labour Party and the Democratic Party it's become very obvious, very much are are state institutions. They're key legitimation forces for um, the British and the American state machines and for capitalist mm-hmm. power. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, the, the the mantra that came from the Sanders, shall we say, media sphere uh, after 2016 was that, okay, okay, we're going to take over the Democratic Party. This was the thing. Uh, DSA was all into it. Um, it had an official magazine in the form of Jacobin. Uh, there was a million books and blogs and tweets written about it. Um, they were going to take over the Democratic Party. They're going to make it progressive. And they were going to get candidates like AOC and uh, Ilhan Omar and the squadists. Uh, we're going to change everything. So, Amy, um, how's that gone? <laughs> I mean, to my mind, it wasn't long after AOC got elected that it became pretty clear to me that, like, she was actually a malevolent force, not a useful one, because mm. she sort of basically acted as a very um, useful sort of mystification device, like a foil, kind of a bridge between um, 
the existing like Clintonite party and sort of because she made enough overtures towards like some kind of Sanders-esque politics it allowed again like the people are very into especially like upper middle class people are very intuitively comfortable with the status quo um, Mm. ideologically and like anything outside of it or anything that unseats its assumptions is read um, as threatening by them. And so Mm. what AOC could manage to do was aesthetically in certain ways, like make a nod towards Set, like a Sanders style, more universalist politics with like some decent shit for working people purportedly, um, yet not actually repudiate most of the neoliberal logic um, that would prevent those policies ever coming to pass. And so but what that did is that like, I actually think our very existence really has been the best thing for the Democratic Party imaginable because if she hadn't been elected and hadn't managed to like mystify the stakes and make it seem as though like we could do that same thing but we would just like it better, which was all affective and it was all implicit. It was that she actually wasn't, she actually wasn't repudiating the status quo in the way that Sanders was and that's why she felt different and that's why in effect, her presence actually sort of made Sanders more hostile seeming, I think, because mm. because he actually did repudiate a lot of those things that she refused to. So, like, for instance, at least in his 2016 campaign, he didn't, and, and this is much broader than AOC, mm. um, but he didn't feel the need to do all this alienating, like, divisive rhetoric about, like, racial shit. And, like, he, I mean, he did to some some extent in relation to like you know when he stood out of the way for those black lives matter girls and stuff and like yeah he's ultimately like he came out of the out of the student organizing movement like he's ultimately um he's not some like class reductionist socialist by any stretch of the imagination but he was never like neoliberal work he was always like sort of more of a martin luther king era like yeah um working people should work together they have more in common materially and like this isn't about race as race whereas Mm. the aoc school of neoliberalism is like fully like takes all of the premises of racial ideology of jim crow but just like has different normative (laughs) conclusions about it you know Mm. like but the logic of it is identical it fully reinforces like just the completely bullshit notion that race is anything other than a a political construction it like fetishizes brown and immigrant populations instead of white ones but like it's still doing all the same kind of divisive fuckery and so like i think yeah she was the very fact that like she was immediately um absolutely adored by the entire media and the entire like wine mom crowd that literally were the ones smearing sanders for years and making and like totally hostile to his project like that was yeah yeah just very quickly it became obvious that like we were fucked I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, if she's the heir, like, if she's the only legacy. Um, yeah, yeah. This isn't, this isn't going to work, you know? Yeah, this is, this isn't what you, this isn't what you think it's going to be. Um, yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you Because you see her as a trajectory, right? Like, she is yeah. actually a trajectory, and you can see fundamentally, if that's tr- the trajectory of this thing, 
then we're in a difficult spot, you know. Yeah, I remember listening to your uh, your episode on your podcast about um, the politics of AOC. And oh God, it, I'd been awake for like, I'm not, I'll tell you the truth now, I'd been awake for like 60 hours when we recorded that. I'd had like <laughs> all these assignments due and I was, yeah. I, oh, my brain was mush. So I apologize for that. Well, hey, it was, <laughs> um, in that case, it was surprisingly coherent. Um, but, uh, I wanted to mention it because it was, um, what, what you started to talk about there got actually my my thinking jumped off from that jumped off from what you said, which was you were talk, talking about um, how um, essentially AOC was selling a brand or a product, um, mm. a lot of which was predicated on a personal story, which was largely enhanced or fictional, uh, the mm. fake working class origins, etc. But mm. she reinforced it by a strategic and tactical deployment of extreme emotion and mm. the, this was how um she she conducted herself was like it was this sort of strange narcissistic way of behaving that like mm. if challenged or in, in certain situations she would be photographed weeping and mm. it was i never considered that really before in terms of the political use the, the political utility of that uh, yes. for somebody. So, um, yes. talk a little bit about that. About w w when when did you first observe that, and um, sort of how did you put together what she was doing? Well, yeah, it's sort of a combination of factors. Like part of it is the like just the experiences that I happen to have had in my life. Mm. Um, but then another part of it that was really helpful was coming immediately off the back of the Me Too movement that we'd experienced for. Uh, 18 months at that point um there'd been such a conspicuous deployment of um the specter of the traumatized woman and like the narrativization of what was supposed to be political but was just personal yeah that it became like increasingly clear to me that there was a very pernicious form of sort of um, bourgeois gender wars that were serving, like very much serving class interests and political interests in sort of yeah. reinforcing a very neoliberal frame, a very bourgeois frame, which is the idea that like men are the enemy um, and that like all women are victims, which is such a fucking fundamentally reactionary notion as well. Like yeah. I'm a woman, I've been a woman my entire life. Like I, sure, I don't live in Saudi Arabia and so I'm not going to speak to like certain countries where, you know, de jure um, enfranchisement within the state is not something that they have yet. So like mm. I'm not saying patriarchy doesn't exist anywhere in the world. But, like, the 21st century in a Western nation, like the UK, the US, or Australia, we don't live in a patriarchy. I'm sorry, but this is a nonsense. We have the same, like, we're fully enfranchised in the way that men are. Sure, there are certain factors that mean um, potentially being, like, a super successful girl boss is a little <laughs> more difficult if you want to also have children. But, again, that's, like... Well, that's what nannies are for. Like... Yeah, I mean, just I, we don't live in a patriarchy, and working people of any gender, their material interests are collective as a class. They're yeah. not like my like, and this is what always just messed with me. It's just such a fundamental thing. It's like you ask any of these people hawking this nonsense, you say, okay, so if there is this subject woman, 
and you don't say this part, but you say if there's supposedly this subject woman, like outside of class relations is like in my head. So if there is this like, you know, fundamental subject or class of persons known as woman, what that necessarily means is that a young woman who's in effect like chained to a sewing machine in a sweatshop somewhere in Southeast Asia yeah. has fundamentally the same political interests as Hillary Clinton in one way or another on at least some specific criterion, whatever that may be, these women are in a class together and have shared political interests. And if you ask them, <laughs> so, so what are those interests? Mm. No one can answer that question. Uh, uh, the the woman in the the on the sewing machine in uh, in a Bangladesh sweatshop she can be a girl boss just like Hillary Hillary's written a book about it yeah <laughs> uh, playing all playing, right yeah yeah <laughs> I'm sure I'm, like what are I'm we sure doing Hillary, here <laughs> um, playing um, advocating for the devil for a moment name mm-hmm. uh, please do yeah absolutely. Um, Let's let let's take this in the direction of the uh, the arguments around. Uh, a lot of people now will dis will sort of shit on uh, the what they call corporate feminism or bourgeois feminism or capitalist feminism. Yeah, I love um, that shit. I love but, it. I love it. Gimme, yeah. gimme, gimme. Okay, okay. Here we go. I'll do it. I was going to do it in my best Trotskyist voice, but I won't. Um, the the argument that comes back um, is well, yes, that's all. Yeah, we we don't like that. Uh, we don't like the um, the bourgeois feminists. They're you know gender reductionist or whatever. What we have here in this, let's just call it the um, Alliance of White Trotskyist organization. Um, what we are in favor of is socialist feminism. What we mm-hmm. we see um, class and gender as intersecting. Uh, love that word. Um, and that where someone who's working class and a woman is doubly oppressed. And uh, what we need to do is to find a politics that um, addresses both points, because um, you can't have liberation without addressing uh, both the gender and the class question. Uh, that's how I've heard it put in many, many different areas. It's been uh, how it's been argued to me. How would you respond to our theoretical socialist feminist? The they're using that term to to obfuscate like uh, to obscure a contradiction mm-hmm. so like again that this whole notion of like woman as a, a class or like a, a political subject outside of class hierarchy they still haven't answered that question as to what that even means it's just an elaborate set of discourses that obscure the very basic premise that the material interests of a working class woman uh, in have a fundamental class contradiction with the interests of bourgeois women. Mm. There's a contradiction there. And you can't resolve it by just pasting all this fucking crap on top. To just, just well, I mean, you can't resolve it, but you can make enough noise that people who are not spectrum like me will like sort of buy it and if you make enough noise and you do enough discourse that it's so thick and so heavy and so discombobulating to try to dig through all of it and reconcile it and if you specifically make it so that anyone with balls is um branded a misogynist pig should they dare to object so you've taken out like you know 50 percent of the people who are going to object to it from the jump 
because mm. it's like via this like socially disciplinary function, right? If if objecting to it means that like every woman in your social circle is going to consider you a so like a, a chauvinist pig. And then you'll never be able to like date anyone or like be welcome in certain circles if you're a bourgeois like guy. Yeah. Then you're just going to shut the fuck up and it's going to be basically not your problem or you're going to adopt it and advocate it as a way to get pussy. <laughs> so, no, I'm serious. Like, I know, I know, I know. But I know, in I... doing that, this is honest and this is real. Like this is actually true. Like even if it means that they just shut the fuck up and go along to get along, don't say anything about it, don't object because if you object – then you're a chauvinist pig, right? Like, yeah. so, so it's this like totally like container term that has no actual discrete meaning because you ask them what they mean by feminism. Oh, women's equality. Equality with what? Equality of what? Mm. Like, so what do you mean? Because the because the inequality that we face in society is class inequality. Mm. So, like, I'll, what I'll... what are we talking about here? So you make it so that fifty percent of the of even the bourgeois people with the academic fucking gonad, like the academic, like expertise and like the right fucking, the way, like the people who can potentially even reckon with all that discursive mess, you make it so that half of them are basically not allowed to broach the subject without being rendered unacceptable socially. So then mm. you've like halved the problem. Yeah. And then the other half of them either find it much, much easier to get their own little sinecures by drawing a bunch of distinctions without a difference, which is mm. how you get social reproduction theory, um, Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, intersexual yeah. feminism. It's like, because that's where the money is, bitch. That's where the funding is. This shit is all, like, there's a political economy attached to going along to get along with the, all the stuff that the universities are hocking because universities exist within class structure too they exist to reproduce both themselves and the material interests of the classes that control them mm. like, none of this is like outside of political economy it's like all issues developed in universities because it has a very specific purpose mm. very specific utility yeah and um to uh, uh, adopting my character Actor of um, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Horrific Trotskyist again. Yeah, of course, um, of course. The comeback that usually um, is said, or more often screamed, is <laughs> that, uh, that um, this is how it's been expressed to me in the past: mm -hmm. that a working class woman, uh, the double oppression comes from the fact that they are a working woman. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the working class, your socialist feminist, Marxist feminist will not only acknowledge that, they will make a big point of it, but also that um, she's also uh, laboring under the um, the oppressive structure of the patriarchy. And some of them will argue that the patriarchy is still crucial to capitalism and that you yeah, can't have like the dual systems theory. Well, um, they call it in, in. I've heard it called. It, they always call it intersectional. It's intersecting oppressions um, <laughs> that that weigh down upon the working class woman. So she's oppressed as a member of the working class, and then she's oppressed as a woman. Um, right. If that would well, I, I, what they have said is that, and now I'm having to advocate for this. It makes even less yeah, sense. Yeah, go no, go for it. No, please um, do. What they say is um okay so um you know the woman who um let's just say there's a, uh, a woman who's seeking say 
an abortion in mm-hmm. Alabama, some deep south place where abortion is heavily restricted. Um, she's going to um, working class woman seeking an abortion or a very poor woman seeking an abortion is not going to be able to get one because of her class position. And also she's doubly discriminated against because um, the the evil Republicans are taking away her reproductive rights. So if that if I throw that back at you. How do you how, how would you respond to some a point like that? So, uh, first of all, what we've done, and uh, this isn't your fault by any stretch of the imagination, but notice what we were talking about there the whole time. An individual woman and her class position. Yeah. Right? So what we've, like, what these motherfuckers tacitly do is smuggle in um, a bourgeois liberal individualist ideology and then try to like retcon some kind of like pretend class politics on top. But oh, what, the tac- what the tacit what the tacit like some race, gender, that these things are axiomatically similar. That mm. they're um that they're different in degree or in flavor, but the but fundamentally the same in kind. But no, like the core, the core Marxist premise is that like these are not, these are different in kind. Like class is what produces all of those like socially contingent categories and ascriptive yeah. identities. You know what yeah. I mean? So even the very notion of gender is produced by the the relations of production and the particular like a historical contingencies. You know what I mean? Like that you, you you basically in order to do that you have to reject the materialist conception of history. Yes, but if you scream very loudly that you're not, then surely that you're surely it all works. Um because that that that's the point in the argument where things usually descend into somebody replying to a tweet with all capitals. Or well, yes, I mean, this is where the, it just becomes a, a tool of social discipline, where because essentially anarchists, and I fundamentally believe that most liberals and certainly neoliberals are anarchists in their, like, uh, rejection of the political, right? So, like, mm. what they either need is consensus or people to just shut the fuck up so it looks like consensus because what they can't do is reckon with political difference because there is no mm. ideology. So rather than being like, okay, well, we fundamentally, like, uh have different like axioms on which our entire frame is built it becomes well you're a fucking strasserite nazi misogynist whatever because i can't reckon with the very idea that someone might actually have different like fundamental premises on which the way they see the world is formulated Mm. well that that leads us to a very uh interesting development from that point doesn't it because the if we look at both uh, the aoc phenomenon and how that fed into the Sanders 2020 campaign, such as it was, um, it was that she brings with her, and not just her, but, you know, everybody around. Uh, yeah, she was sphere. just symptomatic, you know, like yeah. she just is like a useful way to point at this yeah, she's, broader set of relations. You yeah, know, it's, it's not thing. it's not a matter of, uh, you know, she invented all this. She's just an yeah. expression of it. Yeah, it's none um, of that like, but, great man of history shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you, hey, great woman of history, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, the future is not female. The future is non-binary. Stop being so. Oh god! Yeah. I, oh god! I've just cancelled myself. I've just cancelled myself. I'm going to have to erase oh. myself. 
Long dead and gone. So All right, okay. I'll, I'll join you in the netherworld. Um, the <laughs> the <laughs> the thing that um, the thing that struck me about like reading all the myriad of uh, material that came out of the sort of should we say think tank world around um, around uh, the Corbyn campaign, but especially around uh, what became the the sphere around Sanders, whether he sought mm-hmm. it or not is there was like a, a trio of obsessions which they kept pushing Sanders to adopt more and more sort of what I would describe as radical liberal positions on. So yeah. was the AOC doing the uh, screaming about uh, that Trump's putting kids in concentration I, camps? I, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and baby that, that's cages. then... Baby these, cages. Orange man yeah, Trump, Cheeto, Cheeto, thing. Um, the Cheeto in the White House, impeach that motherfucker already. <laughs> that hey, if Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit want to make a comeback, they could easily do it by recording something like that. Um, the the so it became a question of like um, the likes of AOC running around saying abolish ICE, um, uh, idiots in um, Jacobin like. Uh, writing whole books about the need to essentially erase the borders, which under capitalism or even under a socialist system seems like just pie-eyed dystopian or utopian. Well, I mean, it's not even abolish borders, it's open borders, mm. which to me is so beautiful because what it tacitly is doing <laughs> is reinforcing the logic of the status quo. So mm. they're not saying like transcending you know, a world full of nation states. We're not transcending the nation state form. We're literally Mm. complying with, like, the existing political formation of the nation state, but we're just going to open borders. So there's actually nothing revolutionary or radical or interesting in it. It's just saying, who the fuck cares, let's lean all the way into the the final component of the neoliberal project, which has yet to be finalized, i.e. the deregulation of the nation state as a, um, you know, a political form through which people have any kind of say. Yeah. And that, let, let's, um, let's go, let's go further into that whole um, abolish ice, open borders, concentration camp narrative, because that became one of the defining features of this um, leftoid sphere in the United States. Um, it, it reflected itself in Britain in a slightly different way in the, the obsession with um, stopping Brexit or keeping, um, there was a big stink here to push Corbyn into keeping a commitment to um, the free movement of labor across um, Europe, which is um, which united people who described themselves as revolutionary socialists and firms in the city of London in making the same demand, which should have told you some, should have told everybody something seriously wrong was going on as soon as that became the case. But in the United States, what makes you, what makes you think that corporations don't have our best interests in mind? Oh, uh, I just got this old, uh, uh, this thing I found on uh, in a uh, a mouldy book at the bottom of a uh, a condemned pile in a library. It just said uh, something about class interests. I see you've Never. been. I see you've been munching on that. That that's that's right, literature. Again. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, I, I, you know what? I I became the horseshoe theory whilst doing yoga. Um, that was <laughs> physical expression. Um, so 
sorry. <laughs> um, the so this the the open the the open the borders stuff became a hot button issue to use the horrible you know, sort of uh, corporate media phrase um, in the United States because first of all Trump lent into it in his own way when he was sort of nodding and winking at sort of white identity politics during his campaign and then of course the other side of it uh, AOC does her performative thing weeping in a white suit border. Um, clinging onto a fence like it's, you know, she's Linda Hamilton in that scene in Terminator 2 where she gets nuked. Um, the um, the whole, uh, the, the slogan abolish ICE, which united everybody from like the AOCs and the sort of neoliberals all the way through to alleged Maoists who were putting forward the same slogan and behaving in exactly the same way. Um, but curious it's that, isn't it? It is curious. It's almost as if um, it's almost as if Maoism in the Western world is is a load of empty liberal bullshit. Um, uh, meaning I just absolutely. Don't pay nothing. any yeah, like I just don't pay any attention to people's self-described label. I think it means literally nothing. Like just well, look at the logic, the logic that people are deploying. That's and sort of like their material like investments. Like yeah. who's who's signing their paycheck? Like. Whose interests are they advancing? Who, like, what um, sort of publications or classes of people are finding them acceptable versus unacceptable? Like, yeah. if all of a sudden the the sort of bastions of like elite liberalism have suddenly just jumped on this so-called like revolutionary quote demand, um. That should be telling you something. And and moreover, like, just a very basic premise. It's like, okay, so, and this is something that um, one, of my, one of my online friends um, very much, like, pioneered. I think he was maybe even on it before I was. It, this, like, sort of abolish rhetoric is, it's libertarian. It's the rollback of the state. It's a refusal to do politics. It's saying, like, abolish the Fed. <laughs> like, mm. it's, I don't like this thing at a surface level, so let's just, like, delete the, uh, like, let's just make it go away. And, like, one of the fundamentally, like, most consummately neoliberal things is, like, the reduction of, like public administrative capacity and the privatization and the handing these things over to to be just like looted and um administered by private mercenaries or corporations or whatever and yeah. so like i think you should be very suspicious of this like knee-jerk inclination to want to just like abolish anything rather than actually like reckoning with it politically so none of these abolish ice motherfuckers could tell me like okay so but then like you delete this particular agency but then like you haven't deleted the fact that like the federal government still has the discretionary authority to, to deal with immigration and fundamentally they're still gonna like need to do certain things so do you think that like if they delete this agency and but then the task of that agency is still something that a government wants to pursue they're just gonna like chop it up into a million different like dogs breakfast like components and dish it out to other agencies like no one ever answered like some very basic questions about like what next and it became very clear that it was just like this emotive bullshit and like honestly a month after AOC and the squad got elected in 2018 midterms 
Macaulay yeah. stopped using it. He stopped saying that shit. He jumped onto this other thing. It was about like national, like um, national voter registry. And it was just so plain that this is like this is a very useful exercise to like exploit the affect of like what is obviously barbaric. But like it seems to me that there's actually something more barbaric and more cynical about using like deploying the pain of these people as a way to like get votes. That's worse. Yeah, that's exactly like it's, what they... It's sick. It's, it's fucking it's flip, sicko shit. It's the literal flip side of Trump. I mean, that's, that's yes, all Yes, at is. least Trump is... But yeah, but there's to some degree... This is why I hate the left so much right now. It's like, at least with Trump, he is like just being a scumbag pig about it. Oh, yeah, so he's open. In he's, being a scumbag, blatant pig about it, there is some tiny modicum of like responsibility taking do you know what i mean like he's at the very least owning the repugnance of what he's doing publicly like he's putting a face to it he's saying we need to check out what's going on like i'm gonna build a wall like he's taking the heat for that you know which again when i say taking the heat it's also persuasive like it has it's not a political cost to him it was of a benefit too but like the the very fact of like pretending to be the like pretending to be like noble and like that you are the good guys while like you don't give a fuck look at the way they treated um Tulsi when what she said was actually far more complicated and good which was like yeah it's one thing to like not be you know um putting you know the the immigration problem is a fundamentally like complicated multifactorial thing and it's not enough to just have this like two word slogan when in fact what we're doing is producing this migration crisis like we need to look at at the push factors not just fucking have a cry with bright red lipstick on in the desert like <laughs> yeah yeah i never saw anybody uh, in the middle of a desert with uh, a makeup job done so far oh, done, so done so i was well. so blatant i'm sorry but like i'm yeah. a i'm a woman of a similar age and like a similar natural complexion to aoc you don't that's not how that works you're like <laughs> yeah i know what i'm doing if i wear an all-white outfit with bright red lipstick come on like it's fine i don't yeah, care it was, I don't it was judge. a photo shoot you know, but like grow up, like it is yeah. what it is. It's fine. Yeah. But like, and yeah, the um, the the whole um, the the whole thing around that uh, around that narrative was uh, f- fundamentally rested on a, a de- deeply fraudulent basis. Um, well, I think and- what it does so beautifully is it takes it means that you can't. It's depoliticizing and it's polarizing and it makes it impossible to critique without you being accused of doing a bunch of like malicious or unkind shit. Yeah, so it's, good all, it's, yeah. it's all about what we were saying earlier about the, the AOC and also the wider than her, that school of politics, which is um, how dare you, We, we the, these people are suffering we need solutions now. We've got to abolish weaponization of trauma to obscure the political yes. contradictions that produced the fake trauma or the real trauma, yeah, whatever it may be. The reason um, that I, I followed Tulsi Gabbard's campaign with a degree of interest because she was really the only one who actually got close to telling the truth about the reason why there's so much um, uh, Latino Im- uh, migration across the Mexican-U.S. Yep. border. 
was because she was the only one who picked up on the fact that well um uh the it's not just the the coups the the wars the various um overthrows of leftist governments like uh, that the U.S. has orchestrated, that Obama orchestrated down in uh, Honduras, for instance. Baby, um, Obama built the cages. Yeah, exactly. But he was you know, the deporter in chief. Like, I'm sorry, but the, this 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 complete absence of institutional memory is staggering. Yeah, and Clinton, Clinton <laughs> built it. Started building a fence. Um, yeah. He did so just, I mean, the militarization of the border starts immediately as the, after they passed NAFTA, because that ruined and impov impoverished the uh, the Mexican small farming class. That's, that's not how that's not how Dan Denver tells the story, my friend. It was a resurgence in nativism, <laughs> American nativism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I should I, I should I lo do love his NPR voice. Um, it um, it. It strikes me that the, the the approach to that being taken by like not just AOC but like the the Daniel Danvers the Jacobin people, it, these people claim to be either Marxist or Marx influenced or socialists of some kind or another, but it is a laughable claim because if you don't un it, I mean Jacobin at the same time and this is another it's a particular bugbear of mine, they were running these virulently um anti um anti maduro articles in their pages um slagging off um the government of venezuela and uh, essentially making the case for the united states getting its way and doing a coup but not saying that but just say oh look it's terrible he's a human rights oppressor it's almost and like a, they're like the moral laundromat for the state department isn't it it is it is it's funny <laughs> you should say that Amy. um they 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 come out with all this stuff and then they say oh well you know we've got to you know open borders bring everybody in so it's their position is almost exactly the same as like the 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 open neoliberal or the libertarian position which is yep. we're going to overthrow this government over there and, and basically use a puppet to steal its resources and yep. then when the flow of um, either you know humanitarian seekers or you know, economic refugees or migrants comes in well then we can employ them in our wonderfully diverse workforce um yeah, so the the, the libertarian sort of rand paul argument and the um you know the daniel denver argument essentially they're the same but one just put, one just puts a red rose on the other one um gets beaten up by his neighbor um that's yeah rand paul. so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have this fundamental shit. thing where, like the the, um, I mean, both. I mean, uh, so like d ten ish years ago, before the completion of the sort of um, class bases, like the class base realignment hadn't yet completed, and sort of like, you know, the, um between sort of the the democrats and the gop and you had a fuck ton of like you know that resurgence of libertarianism um yeah. that coincided also with like occupy wall street as well yeah. um and and people now seem to have this like totally romantic notion of occupy wall street as so some kind of like socialist or like grassroots thing no it was fucking really anarchists cool. it was literally a combination of like um black block anarchist knobheads 
and like mm-hmm. um, disaffected people, and then just a fuck ton of like Gadsden flag libertarians, techno libertarians, and libertarians as well. Like these people have the same fundamental political ontology. So any difference they have is basically a difference of like affect and, and emotional bullshit, which is effectively a brand because it's idealism. Like, yeah, if what would. you're endorsing is the same political economy, I don't give a shit whether you believe really hard that it should pan out nice versus believe really hard that it doesn't matter how it pans out. Mm. You get what I mean? Like, so because if you're endorsing the same fundamental, like, set of who has what resources and who is subject to the fucking decision-making and, like, yoked to what who else, it doesn't matter whether you, like, hope really hard in your heart that it turns out well. Yeah, it's... it's- the, the material <laughs> is you. the thing that matters. You yeah. know, it's it's like oh well, you know, I've heard the defense loads of times from actually from sort of Blair cultists always used to use this defense. It's like oh well, you know, Tony didn't want um, Iraq to turn out like it did, and it's like well, it doesn't fucking matter, does I don't it? Care. It doesn't yes. doesn't it doesn't I don't give a shit because. He can't argue with the material. Well, you can try. You can try. I'm sorry, but political functionaries are not there for what they believe in their heart. Yeah. Uh, We're (laughs) not looking for, you know, we're not not dealing in sort of Plato's dialogues here, looking for the, uh, the inner self, the ideal form. Um, Yes, it's it's a fundamentally like anarchist rejection of responsibility. It's yeah, a refusal you... to deal with power. Your responsibility is to exercise power in a way that, um, that is good or, like, at the very least, isn't harmful. You don't get to just say, oh, I meant well. Yeah, which is a sort of – it's it's almost a sort of um, medieval defense. It's, like, um, completely bizarre. Um, well, it's just idea. a rejection of responsibility. It's a deflection of the political. What did you think was, would happen when you invaded a sovereign nation for no actual reason? Um, like, this isn't would... rocket science. You don't get to just cop out of it that easily. I thought that, oh, magically, like when we were killing all these people, that like somehow that would turn out well. Fuck off. Grow yeah, up. That, well, that's what you, where, what, drawing on what you said about the, uh, the, the complete and deliberate depoliticization. Is yes. that the people who so bought this, ugly to me, and it, it's it is it's uglier than the, the what the the sort of neoliberal um, humanitarian interventionist justification for like Iraq, Afghanistan, and going back further like Bosnia, Kosovo, things like that. Mm, um, absolutely, it all depends on sort of, and one of my other pet hates. Christopher Hitchens was a devil for this. Um, was yeah. it's all That's this what... sort of hysterical moralism um it rejects the political explicitly because it rejects explanations so you you'd see hitchens arguing with some of his uh, old comrades uh, who in many ways was just as reprehensible as he was (laughs) saying it oh well we need to do something now you're letting um slobodan milosevic murder thousands and thousands of people and but then you you dig in and you dig further and you start to uncover um, the multiple different layers of what actually causes these crises. And the answer mm-hmm. is always material relations. So, mm-hmm. for instance, um, just to divert for a moment, Yugoslavia, the wars there were always presented on mainstream news uh, through BBC, etc. in this country as an unexplainable phenomenon. Oh, these people just woke up one morning and it all decided that they hated each other. We need to go in there and act as an honest arbiter and sort them out. 
but then you dig in and i you know i was barely a teenager so i didn't even pay attention but it was years later that i i don't dig into it and you find a lot of the origins for the the problems uh, that destroyed yugoslavia completely lay in uh so it was a national security directive 84 signed by reagan which sought as a national security priority of the united states the split up and destruction of yugoslavia and using economic pressure that they owed to western banks to force a disintegration and then you dig further and you find into uh, it's a book by michael parenti about death of yugoslavia and you find the um the americans the british and the germans flooding um sort of uh, nativist, uh, sort of semi-fascistic revivalist parties in Croatia um, with multiple millions of dollars, just, just like they are with the jihadists in Syria. Uh, they, they literally demanded free elections and then flooded the worst, most far-right elements with money and weapons and then said, oh, look, there's a, there's a conflict there. And then the moralists come in and say, we must do something. And I'm like, listen, arsehole, you've done something already. <laughs> you helped to you helped to destroy this nation, and now you're going to pretend that you're going to go in and put it back together again. Yeah, but so the these are two patients that they like this fundamental idealism, like we have a responsibility to protect, which is like so fucking perfect for this professional class liberalism, which just like loves to um, hide. It's like as Thomas Frank says, it finds this like unimpeachable subject of virtue and then it just like hides its ruthless class agenda behind this like virtuous subject. But like ultimately I think so much of what these people do and this is how you can just immediately spot it in future is that they're just constantly motherfucking speaking for other people. Yeah. Constantly yeah. hiding behind these specters of vulnerability of other people. Yeah. It's just like this isn't I this politics isn't you know it's just straight up delusional to think that all these people who earn money and are paid by people with lots of money are like doing shit that is against the interests of the class of people paying them. Grow yeah. up. Yeah. Like I just it doesn't take perniciousness, but it just this isn't what this is. And stop well, yeah. trolling for it, you know. <laughs> And the reason, I mean, but they want to fall for it. The people, like, they want to fall for it. They want to be fucking suckers because all this shit is just like a way to re-legitimate things by differentiating yourself from the people who've been doing that same shit before. So it becomes about like virtue instead of about structures. So like some of the shit that you see in Jacobin now, like a couple of months ago, they had some article to the effect of like, um, um human rights are like unimpeachably good so it's like bad to put them in the hands of um liberal interventionists like samantha power well, i'm the, like wait, what the fuck they are literally like they're invented by liberal interventionists they're yeah, a pretext yeah. for their pretext for liberal interventionism yeah. <laughs> like I mean, the idea they 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 always this is what they always do they're always 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 just creating these distinctions without a difference well, the, so like parcel it out to be, oh, I'll be the good guy. I'll do it now. I'm virtuous. It's the <sighs> it's a long term problem, which is the um, the adoption of uh, bourgeois liberalism um, by people proclaiming themselves very loudly to be on the left. And if you look at like a lot of the the ultra left groups that have flashed around over the last 50 years or so, um, you'll find at the heart of them is essentially like a raging individualistic liberalism. Like mm -hmm. the the French Maoists of 68 all ended up as like identity politics warriors. 
um, uh, who <laughs> all ended up, I think a lot of them ended up like in the over in like the wilder ex- excesses of liberalism or then the yeah, or there's MEPs in some use in the useless European Parliament, or in the case of like um, you know the rebellion sexy people love a rebel people yeah yeah think that well, like it's... one noble like rebel brave motherfucker is like what's going to save things, but actually no, it's like a whole bunch of people sublimating their own fucking personal interests and their own like you know um, egos to a large yeah. extent. Well, it's the hero to narrative. Produce something it? together collectively, which is going to often be ugly, not sexy. It's going to be painful, and it's going to require large amounts of sacrifice with no upshot, no noble bullshit. You know, there's there's not going to be a sexy ending. Often, there's going to just be a lot of pain and brutality, and like hard, hard grunt work, and lots of failure. And none of that is sexy. None of that is something you can sell to these like solutioneering middle-class people well you know you, you can't sell your trotskyist newspaper with that amy you know um which is uh, yeah. what i did for many years and um that's the reason why i'm now allergic to these people um but to, to draw on something you were saying there um the the in the great man the great man of history um the sort of heroic individualist um form of just let's yeah. just say political storytelling um yeah. I think our cult, uh, cultures of certainly many nations, and certainly in the Western um, sphere, are our imaginations are infected with that because that's the culture. It's that human. We're it's like not. It's also yeah. like, but those are better stories, you no, know. You like as humans. Yeah, as humans, like our um, affective capacities are sort of like interpersonal and individual and emotional, right? Like. Mm. You can't really use, like, emotion, though, to dictate, like, policy that's going to be affecting tens of millions or potentially even billions of people. And that's why I just instantly don't trust these motherfuckers who are using, like, anyone who says that, like, they base, like, a politics of empathy to me is, like, some Hitler shit. Yeah, I'm going to feel your pain yeah that's um, it that's sick and twisted you can't you can't feel for everyone necessarily so well i mean that was that was like the people that you feel for are people the most like yourself that's that's what triggers empathy like someone you can uh, relate to yeah, that's the Mussolini thing. It's the the Hitler yes. Führer yes. trick. It's yes. like I am feel really embody. hard for people. You do a bunch of like brutal vigilante, like punitive fucking psycho shit. Yeah, that's uh, why Hitler, I used to uh, scares the shit out of me. Like, oh yeah, well, there's there's not just her. There's a whole generation of them coming yeah. up now. Because who, guess uh, why? It's good for capital. Yeah, yeah, to hide it's itself. Good. Yeah, it's hide itself behind the uh, those the 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 militant empathizers, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah. Um, Hitler. Definitely. We used to say like he was the giant Germany and Germany is me, meaning that I feel for the uh, the the humiliation of our of our people that have fallen hard from um, yeah. a position of power into a position of powerlessness, and it's a trick that all reactionary uh, tub thumping politicians use because. It's a good way of obscuring things. Um, you can't focus on real relations. The left is reactionary all the way down, and by that well, I do not 
people misunderstand reactionary as being necessarily either wanting to return to like a feudal or monarchist society, which it can be, um, or they assume it's some kind of like um, antiquated set of maybe like mid 20th century, like social politics or something. But like on a Marxist view of things, like all they're all reactionary, but just in different ways. Like anyone who's wanting to preserve the um, cultural and, and, political um structures like resulting out of a capitalist order is necessarily trying to um prevent any kind of revolutionary um uh, insurgency of like the one universal class which is not them (laughs) you know yeah well this this leads me to kind of like um uh, a, a sort of uh, a, con- a conclusion, but a conclusion point really for our discussion, which I think is a good um, mm-hmm. sort of nail to uh, to put in it here, which is that the the idea of the left as a as a concrete thing, the idea of this of a leftist, whatever you want to define that as, isn't the very the very concept of it now redundant isn't it useless for any sort of understanding because or building anything because it comes from the idea that you know right the way back to the french revolution it's literally like the uh, the bourgeois radicals sat on the left <laughs> right the reactionaries sat on the right and mm. hasn't that led us to over well one of the contributory factors to over 130 40 50 years now of socialist movements getting hamstrung because they're trying to incorporate um, bourgeois radicalism into their into their ideological makeup, so to speak, um, to the point where essentially every, all the class demands get diluted. Like what you were talking about before, like um, to actually achieve socialist change takes a sublimation of the self. It takes embracing um, working as part of a collective, sometimes anonymous sacrifice. Whereas liberalism, trying to incorporate that into it, is like you know, pouring oil into water. Um, you can't mix the two and come out with a politics that is really going to achieve anything other than a reinforcement of the status quo, given how class relations are. So um, isn't it necessary for us, if we're going to advance, if we're going to go beyond this sort of puppet show that has been put on for us for the last few years, um, the the circus of uh, around Corbyn and Sanders, we have to get rid of the idea that we as socialist, communist, whatever you want to call yourself, those of us who advocate for real working class power have anything to do with liberal, the, lib, the bourgeois liberal radicals. Only, only The only thing we have to do with them is that we should be their bitter opponents, not that these are somehow our problematic friends. Does that, so, does think, that make sense? I think that's right. But I'm very, I'm very allergic to sort of saying like, I have a path forward or here's like what some amorphous we need to do now. Um, but I just fundamentally think at least for myself, someone who's like, you know, I'm like the utility or the skill set that I have, like my utility to any kind of like working class, whatever is like, I'm analytical and I'm critical. And, um, so I'm really allergic to sort of like activistism I don't have a set of like things we can do I'm not going to be Lenin I'm not going to tell you like what is to be done but to my mind right now like um I'm just interested in ruthless critique I think this particular moment 
is one of really, really rampant mystification of mm. what's actually happening. And particularly a moment where, like, ultimately you have, like, petty bourgeois fuckwits that all represent the exact same class interests, and yet for some reason significant portions of the public are convinced that that they are, like, socialists and fascists. <laughs> like, no, these are just, like, middling fucking entertainers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you know what uh, I mean? It, like, I I really do theatrics. just think like clarification is the task of the movement. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like actually just trying to see clearly what's actually going on and pointing out the fucking stakes of things is really like the skill that I have, and it's what I'm going to continue to do. Um, but that's sort of where I'm at right now. You know, like yeah. I don't. But I think fundamentally the freedoms in liberalism, the the internal contradictions of liberalism, um, and I think also the particular moment in terms of like the mode of capitalist production, particularly in the West, is such that like there was this sort of easy illusion in I think much of the 20th century that looked as though some kind of like um, left or working class project had sort of afforded itself power within a liberal order. Um, But I think a lot of that was um, illusory. It was historically contingent. I think in this particular moment with the productive forces being what they are, I don't think that's coming back. I think like trying to retcon, like it's sort of very easy. And I, I was doing this a little bit myself last year, I think, where it's like, no, there is no left, like, and this sort of subtly, almost reactionary notion of trying to like reinvigorate a more authentic left, you know, it's like, no, that uh, that's not coming back. Like bureaucratized trade unions of the 20th century, like in the industrial production era in mm. the West, they're not coming back and it's a reactionary project to try to reinvigorate them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's ultimately reactionary um, to try to do social democracy top down via parliament in a nation like America, which has never had that when the working class is like the most disorganized and alienated it's been in a century. Like that yeah. is inherently reactionary when you think about it really. You well, know? when you when you look at like what the the models a lot of these people were using um, the the models of social democracy in Britain and Western Europe from 45 to 80, um, that what they call in British political science circles the post-war consensus, um, was contingent upon a very specific set of um, economic and political circumstances after World yes. War II, yes. which, were, which were unique. Um, and that you can't just magic those out of the ground again. Um, yes, for me exactly. to go into them now would be here all day, but needless to say, yeah, exactly. as soon as capital felt both... Capital's if, global as as now. Capital, yeah, as soon as capital was Capit- in a position backwards, where... baby. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it had to remove those concessions for itself to expand, and that's mm-hmm. what was that... That's what was done, and they they took everything back partly, and they were successful with it because the the trade unions and the left parties had essentially been willingly closed their eyes to the fact that there was always a clock counting down on when those concessions were going to be taken away, or whether they when yep. they were going to be tried to take them away, and because yep. ever since then, both 
the the social democrats on the right and the social democrats who think of themselves on the left have in their own ways both been trying to get back to where the the capitalists will give them that seat back at the table to yep. go back to our earlier talk analogy Absolutely. and they can't get why, back there yeah it's why like ultimately like okay so for instance when i talk about say the open borders issue that we discussed earlier hmm. the fact that i don't then go into like solutioneering the fact that i simply point out like the impact this thing would have on the working class broadly or at least uh, in the States. People then like to like draw these conclusions that like, oh, she's advocating like socialism in one country, economic nationalism, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I don't think that's a solution either. Get a grip. Well, you have like, to I'm not going to sit. Well, I'm not going to sit here and dictate like how this plays i'm just saying like this yeah. is what's going to happen if you do x that doesn't mean that i want socialism in one country or think that like hardened borders and trying to reinvigorate some kind of fucking protectionism is anything short of ludicrous as well do you know what i mean you well, can't go backwards into economic nationalism when fucking global when capital is global half the economy has been financialized and is basically just like fucking trickery pretend like no you, you do need like internationalism in terms of like working class organizing but i'm not going to sit here from my fucking ivory tower and tell you how that's going to play out no because it's not up to either you or me um no like precisely it did the, the class struggle in every country will work will play itself will play itself out and what exactly. all i aim to do like uh, with my own uh, youtube channel my own efforts at the moment is like i've been in the middle of like the trade union complex and you end up um, pedaling very hard just to stay still, um, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. So what 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 we need, and, and the biggest one of the biggest problems is that you know we have had that awareness of ourselves as working as a, as a class re almost removed from us. So now mm, we can't just run around enthusiastically trying to recreate the forms of the past. We have to interrogate our 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 history in terms of not just the events but the ideas the material forces to the point where we can start to see a way forward because at the moment all that's happening is people are just recycling forms from the past that's all yes. in the end corbyn and sanders turned into recycling um battle that's recreation. right absolutely so the the putting forward actual critiques and actually examining things it's well, you know, all the most serious uh, revolutionary leaders of any of, of the last 100, 200 years have all had periods where they've just sat down and reconsidered everything. And, yes. that's and I the, think the, like the fact what tells you so much to me about the fact that this is fundamentally like what we're seeing right now is not even a set of like not even an overtly political movement, but just set of like fundamentally individuated neoliberal um, market actors it's mm. just the pathological, seemingly pathological refusal in any way to reckon with, like, the politics of what happened mm. is just communicates so clearly, both in terms of, like, any of the British media. It's just all this circular finger-pointing, much like the bureaucratic plans that you referred to earlier. They all just yeah. point fingers at one another without in any way reckoning with any of the political contradictions that led to the defeat. Because ultimately, yeah. like, they, they weren't defeated. 
these are fucking rich middle class media actors who got more media jobs. Yeah, they're they still weren't going. defeated, not in any material sense. <laughs> they'll they'll keep they'll keep their columns in the New Statesman. Um, exactly. No one. It's awful. Uh, they'll keep um, popping up on BBC News and the occasional column for the Guardian. They'll they'll live quite decently. Um, mm-hmm. It's the it's the those out there in the in in the working class of Britain and the United States who are going to get fucked over by this again. And yeah, the the really the worst thing is that all of this mean all these mini hurricanes which rip through the uh, the online leftist world and the real life leftist world. Um, for all that they mattered to the working class, it would be as if we dropped a grain of sand on a beach. Yep, I think that's exactly right. Because I think most of this was just utopian, illusory, like circle jerking. None of it. Uh, yeah, it's none of particularly it. Particularly political, it. really. Yeah, the only way you could this will have any value is if we analyze it correctly. Mm, I think that's uh, right. Yeah. Okay. And you know what? Um, I feel like we could probably go on this all day, Amy, but um, um, we've had we've had an hour and forty now, so I think that's oh, a good nice. place for us to that's a good place for us to conclude at the moment, because otherwise um, we'll be talking uh, we'll be talking all night and all day. <laughs> um, but yeah. I want to I want to thank you for coming on today. I really I really get a lot out of this. I've got a lot out of this discussion with you. I, I hope you've enjoyed it Likewise. as well. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I get a bit distracted at times and sort of veer off into little rabbit holes. But well, yeah, this, is, this, this, this is this is this is ideal for And nice. Uh, be sure to uh, check out the uh, podcast that uh, Amy co-hosts uh, with Oliver Bateman now, the What's Left podcast, and you can find that on all the um, semi-respectable podcast outlets, can't you, Amy? Yeah, yeah. I imagine we should probably look into some. Uh, unrespectable ones but i think yeah all the main ones with it <laughs> okay so be sure to check out amy's work on the what's left podcast and stay tuned to red star radio for more coming up of the content that you know and will come to love over time <laughs> we'll fall in love <laughs> yes exactly <laughs>